the light a because it's what we do as christians i'm not going to ask you to raise your hand <laughs> b because my spouse my kid my parent fill in the blanks made me come today c because it's a way to assuage our guilt or to appease our god being here on one of god's two favorite days of the year <laughs> doing him a favor or d d hint d it's because we celebrate the joy that our Savior Jesus rose from the dead. Our blessed hope and real hope, not cheap hope. He gives us hope that we could spend an eternity in a blissful, peaceful, happy, no sin, no evil, no crying, no more pain for the former things that passed away, fellowship with God forever, for eternity. It's deep. The question is, do we really believe that Jesus rose from the dead and is seated at the right hand of the Father? Again, we're going to have our thinking challenged a little bit today. Because if we really believe that Jesus rose from the dead and is seated at the right hand of the Father, it will have a profound effect on the life that we lead today. It has to. And I'm going to continue to repeat the phrase, behavior is a reflection of what we believe. Behavior is a reflection of what we believe. In a little while, we see some good examples from Jesus as follows. But I want to start off with a question. Who believes in the resurrection anyway? Well, let's look at this according to the polls. I did a little research. A 2008 Harris poll says this, that those who believe in the resurrection of Christ was only between 60 and 73% among those who attend Christian services a few times a year. It's pretty low. A Barna Research Group poll, and you've heard of some of these polls, found that 30% of born-again Christians they've polled don't believe in the resurrection. Another poll found that 26% follow this of Christian ministers don't believe in the resurrection. And I would say this to their face, they need to find another line of work, amen? amen. In Europe, the numbers are more disturbing. I've seen pictures of churches where the, the um, you know, Muslims have bought the churches, taken down the crosses, and putting up Arabic writing. It's sad to see, but don't blame the Muslims. They're excited for their faith. What's going on in the faith of Christians over in Europe that so many churches are closing down and being sold as mosques? Revelation 3, Jesus said to the church of Sardis, which was emblematic of many churches today, you have a name that you are alive, but you are dead. Imagine hearing that. Imagine Jesus saying that to us. He says, strengthen the things which remain because they're ready to die. Even what's left is ready to die. He says, I have not found your works perfect or complete or mature before God. And the Apostle Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 15, starting with verse 20. 1 Corinthians 15 starting with verse, I'm sorry, 12, and ending with 20. The Apostle Paul says, Now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? He's speaking to the Corinthian church roughly a little less than 2,000 years ago, but they had the same problem that we have today in churches. They didn't believe. Some of them didn't believe in the resurrection. Paul goes on to say, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. He goes on to make a logical argument here. 
And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is also in vain. Clarification, vain, useless, futile, worthless. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ whom he did not raise up if in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. And if that's the case, there's no sense in having a Christian church because it's useless. We're wasting our time this morning. He goes on to say, Then also, those who have fallen asleep, which is euphemistic for those who have died, in Christ have perished. Perished. Yeah, we know that they died. But there's something a little bit more than that. They're perishing everlasting because they can't meet God's perfection. So they're eternally separated from God. And we know that is a doctrine of hell. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. The preachers are the most pathetic for preaching about Jesus if the resurrection is not true. Last verse. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. If we call ourselves Christians, our belief in the resurrection is inseparable from being born-again Christians. They're not mutually exclusive. It's an oxymoron to say, I'm a born-again Christian, I believe in the Bible. I don't believe in the resurrection, though. That is an oxymoron. The two of them can't go together, right? It's, it's repulsive. Is the resurrection a new concept? The answer is no. Although it wasn't completely understood in the Old Testament, God gave us a glimpse of the resurrection in the Old Testament. And I'm going to read a few scriptures, four of them, from the Old Testament that really build this, this foundation, this basis. In the book of Job, written several thousand years ago, Job 19, he says, I know that my Redeemer lives, and after my body has decayed, yet in my body I will see God. David said in Psalm 17, When I awake, I will be fully satisfied, for I will see you face to face. Isaiah, Isaiah 26, he said, Yet we have this assurance that those who belong to God will live. Their bodies will rise again. Those who sleep in the earth will rise up and sing for joy, for God's light of life will fall like dew on his people in the place of the dead. Daniel, Daniel chapter 12. Many of those whose bodies lie dead and buried will rise up, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. You will rise again to receive the inheritance set aside for you. And in the New Testament, the Messiah, Yeshua, further elucidates this resurrection. I'm just going to read one more handout from Mark Dahan, the elder, how he ties in the order of the resurrection based on the Old Testament feast of the harvest and he says this in israel the feast of the harvest consisted of these three parts the first fruits when a handful of the first fruits was brought to the priest two the harvest itself of which these first fruits were the earnest and three the gleanings the ears which had been trodden underfoot and left at the main harvest these were gathered and added to the others and together constituted the complete harvest the first resurrection is similar and to those of you who've been with us in the book of Revelation. Next Sunday we have our last chapter, very encouraging, a real good picture of what heaven is like, really exciting stuff. This stuff will come, you know, you'll remember it based on our teachings over the last few months. 
In Matthew 27, we read of a company of Old Testament saints who were raised on the day Christ arose. These were the first fruits. When Christ comes, the remainder of the believing dead will be raised. That's what we know of as the rapture. And after the tribulation, the gleanings of the harvest, the martyr tribulation saints together with these two witnesses will be raised, raptured and added to the body of Christ before the Lord returns with his saints to judge the earth. He goes on to say, Thus the Lord vindicates his faithful witnesses, and he is the same today. The preacher who boldly and fearlessly denounces evil and witnesses wholeheartedly for Christ is not popular. The popular preacher today, and this was written over 60 years ago, we still had those types of folks, the ones who would preach the truth and the ones who tried to be popular. The popular preacher today is he who goes along with the crowd and preaches a bloodless gospel a powerless cross, a popular religion, <clears throat> Osteen. <clears throat> Sorry, I had something in my throat. <laughs> Which allows people to continue in their sins. But the preacher who, like Moses and Elijah, dares to denounce the apostasy and decay in morals, even among Christians, nominal Christians, and who raises his voice against the sins of this day and the immortality or the immorality, the worldliness and the salaciousness of this present age is likely to be hated and persecuted. So, with all this history, let's see how Jesus' followers reacted to the empty tomb after being told many times that he would rise from the dead. If you would, turn to Mark 16. Mark 16, starting, starting with verse 9. I'm using a little bit of the, maybe you could say, macabre portion to paint a picture here, especially the followers before they really got, they really got it that Jesus rose from the dead. Mark 16, 9. Now when he, Jesus, rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had cast seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. And when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they did not believe. After that, he appeared in another form to two of them as they walked and went into the country, which we're going to read in a moment, on the road to Emmaus. And they went and told it to the rest, but they did not believe them either. Afterward, he, Jesus, appeared to the eleven as they sat at the table, and he rebuked, he chastised, he disciplined them for their unbelief and hardness of heart because they did not believe those who had seen him after he had risen. Luke 24, turn to Luke 24, starting in verse 13. Luke 24, 13. It says, Now behold, two of them were traveling that same day to a village called Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they talked together of all these things which had happened. Now, two of them, Emmaus, if you are familiar with Israel, you have Jerusalem, okay? And then you have Emmaus, which is, you're going west towards the Mediterranean Sea. Emmaus is about seven miles west. These two guys, on the day Jesus said he would rise from the dead, they're taking a trip out to the country, right? So just to give you a little background there. So it was while they conversed and reasoned that Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were restrained, so they did not know him. And he, Jesus, said to them, What kind of conversation is this that you have with one another as you walk and are sad? 
Then the one whose name was Cleopas answered and said to him, Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem? And have you not known the things which happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, The things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, today is the third day since these things have happened. Yes, and certain women of our company who arrived at the tomb early astonished us. When they did not find his body, they came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And certain of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. Remember, they're heading towards Emmaus, okay? Then he, Jesus, said to them, O foolish ones! And slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. We see later on in Luke 24 that Jesus appeared to disciples in Jerusalem after the resurrection. And their response was, according to the scripture, the scripture Jesus, we've been waiting for you. No. It says that they were terrified and frightened as if they had seen a spirit. Behavior reflects belief. In John chapter 20, two angels appeared to Mary Magdalene, then Jesus himself. But because the tomb was empty, she assumed that Christ's body was taken, and she said, where have you taken the body? Behavior reflects belief. In that same chapter, the disciples tell the apostle Thomas, they've seen Jesus, and his response, I'm paraphrasing, I don't care what the women said, and guys, been with you for three and a half years, I don't care what you say. Until I'm able to take my fingers and put it in the holes in the side where the spear made the Roman soldiers when he was on the cross and see the nail prints in his hands, I'm not going to believe. Behavior reflects belief. Why is it that everyone made the assumption except the proper assumption? They behaved this way because they truly didn't believe in their hearts that Jesus rose from the dead initially. Now, just a little side note in 2 Peter 3, and we would hope that this is just for the world. 2 Peter 3 says, In the last days scoffers will come, walking according to their own lusts, saying, Where is the promise of his coming? Since the fathers died, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. That's the prevailing attitude in the world. And it's also the prevailing attitude, especially in the Western church, according to the polls. Now that we've seen the weakness of Christ's disciples initially, why don't we look at some of the weaknesses in the church today? On the day we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ, can we be honest with ourselves enough to say that our behavior reflects our beliefs? And were we willing to accept whether it's good or whether it's bad? Are our lives presented as a living sacrifice? Do we exude the fragrance or the aroma of Christ, which the apostles Paul spoke of, and if we're honest with ourselves, and I say we, that includes me, we could probably use a little work in that area. Do you want to smell the fragrance of Joe or the fragrance of Jesus? I'll tell you what, you want to, you want to smell the latter, the fragrance of Jesus. Can we articulate the basics of our belief? Can we do that? Or is that my job? 1 Peter 3.15 says to sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense or a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and in fear. 1 Peter 3.15 is not only directed to pastors, it's directed to all believers. 
Would we be characterized as the faithful and wise steward covered in Matthew chapter 24 who expected his master to return at any moment? Exemplifying Christians who lived the life as they believed in Jesus' return or the foolish servant who wasn't watching and was cut in two and appointed with the hypocrites. Some believers, unfortunately, when the Lord comes back, are going to be embarrassed and sad and have to admit to themselves that they fell in love with the world and they weren't expecting Jesus to come back. So how do we behave? As typical American Christians, devoted to God or overly devoted to vacations, gadgets, sports, recreation, education, and all the trappings of what the wealthiest 5% of the world do in America. American Christians can tell you where all the hot spots in Europe are to vacation, but do they know their Bibles? American Christians can tell you all the stats of their favorite sports teams, but can they articulate the basics of their belief systems? American Christians are so devoted to new tinker toys and how to take it apart, especially us guys with the grills, and in one day we can put that thing together. But do we know concepts in the scripture? American Christians, do we? Some take offense to that and say, well, I was blessed to be born in this country of plenty and I shouldn't feel guilty. That's absolutely true. Guilt is not in the Bible, but conviction from the Holy Spirit is. And the parable of the talents doesn't just apply to me. It applies to all of us Christians. All the wealth and all the recreation and all the education that we have as Americans that we're privileged to have, do we use that to further the kingdom of God? That's the parable of the talents. It doesn't just apply to me. See, we get into the trap that we get into with our kids. It's almost as if to say, we send our kids to school and for 12, 13 years until they become 17 and 18 and they apply to colleges. You know, they have... Mrs. Smith and Mr. Crabapple and, and Mr. Smith teaching them for 12, 13 years. That's great. But are we teaching our kids at home? Are we doing that? Because when they become teenagers, we find out suddenly, I don't know who this person is living with me. Why? Because we didn't pour into them. And they're teachers. I love my son's teachers. They're great teachers. But I'm going to pour into them my faith and my values and have him articulate the basis of the resurrection. Because then they become 17 and 18. And we bust our butts and work two jobs to send them to the best schools. And then what happens? Well, there's a phenomena, especially in the, in the better schools. They'll eventually run into their classrooms, run into a classroom and find, doesn't matter what subject it is, some guy with a beard who's a professor and he's a throwback from the 60s. And he finds out who the Christian kids are, your kids. And he makes fun of them. And he asks them questions they can't answer. And he asked them, what is Jesus? And all the other kids think it's funny too. And now your kid is the laughing stock. And now at the age of 22 or 23, your kid comes back from college and they're not Christians anymore. What happened? What happened is we didn't pour anything into them. So it isn't my job to just know the Bible. It is my job to know the Bible. But it's your job too. And it's your job to pour into your kids. Ask your kids, why do they believe that Jesus rose from the dead? Can they articulate that? All right, something to think about, a little thought-provoking there. Every pastor I know sees their church shrink in the warm weather because American Christians look at all the former things that I talked about, and that one hour out of 168 hours in a week, multiply 24 hours a day by seven days, you get 168 hours. That one hour to come and worship God and devote ourselves to Him in fellowship and communion and the Word and in prayer, even that one hour is under assault in America. 
for heaven's sake, Jesus rose from the dead. Do we believe that Jesus rose from the dead? And are we living our lives like we believe that? Second Peter says, a day is of a thousand years, a thousand years is of a day to the Lord. It's been 2,000 years. Jesus has been gone for two days. On the third day, he will rise again. Now, I'm not setting dates, but we're in the era where we may see our Savior soon. Amen? Amen. Now, right about now, some may be saying, listen, Joe, you're blowing it. I've got my relatives here. They wanted to hear a happy message. (laughs) I admit I blew it. And next year... You know, if you go in a 15-mile radius, you can find plenty of buffoons behind pulpits that'll tell you about the pocket Jesus, and I'll introduce you to him. He's about this tall, and when you come to church, you could say, look, born-again Christian, pocket Jesus, right? And then when you go to work, and you get on your Facebook, and you go to be around your friends and social events, you could take pocket Jesus, and he slides right into your pocket. No one will ever see him. So we could do whatever we want, behave however we want, and nobody sees pocket Jesus, right? And then we can go home, take pocket Jesus out, and if there's people coming over and you want to behave a certain way, we can take pocket Jesus and put him in the closet and throw a bunch of clothes on top of him so nobody sees him. Until Sunday, when we pull him out of the clothes, come bring him back to church, smile, Jesus, born again. You see, that's what the buffoons will teach you behind the pulpits about Easter. But I'm here to tell you that Jesus rose from the dead. Pocket Jesus is not the Jesus that we follow. Jesus is the creator of all life. He gave his life so that we could have life. Now, for the more encouraging part. We know the rest of the story in the Gospels shows a marked change in the behavior of Christ's followers when they got it. When they believed, the biggest evidence to the resurrection was changed lives. You had people that... that try to, 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 to hold on to their lives, right? When Jesus was taken, they all fled. Peter kept at a distance. But when they all knew that Jesus, even his own family didn't believe in him. Jesus had brothers and sisters, and they probably thought he was crazy. You look at John 6 and 7, they, they, they thought there was something wrong with him. They didn't follow him. They didn't believe. It was only until his own brothers and sisters saw that he rose from the dead that they started getting involved. The apostle Paul He sent people to kill the Christians, to bind them and bring them. He was insane with getting these people arrested. And even um, Roman historians, uh, secular historians, look at the Apostle Paul's life and said, boy, this guy, what happened to him? He was going after them, and then the next moment, he's, he's with them. And he gives his life for Christ. It didn't make any sense to the world. So the biggest example of those who got the resurrection was a changed life. And I'm going to read some examples. Fox's Book of Martyrs is a great book. Um, it really is very accurate in, in detailing the, the martyrs from the original disciples all the way throughout history and even today, and it's been revised a few times. just want to read two accounts before we close. Peter, the Apostle Peter. Again, let me explain who Peter was. Here's a guy who, when Jesus was arrested... And they see, he sees that they're hitting him and spitting on him and pushing him around. And, and, and the fix is in. They're going to find him guilty. And Peter stays at a distance away from Jesus, warms his hands by the fire, kind of wants to see what's going on, but doesn't want to get too close because then they'll associate Peter with Jesus and then he'll get arrested. So one time somebody asks him, hey, you, you look like somebody familiar. Were you with Jesus? I, I don't know the man. 
Second time, third time. The Bible says in the book of Matthew, read it in the Gospels, it said that he called down curses. He was using profanity. I do not bleep, 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 whatever they said back then. Know the man, he says. And then the, the rooster crows and, and he looks at Jesus and he weeps bitterly. So he really tried to distance himself from Jesus. But look what happened, how his life changed after the resurrection, after he got it. It says this. Peter's final days are not described in the scriptures, but various traditional accounts have survived. Reportedly, he spent horrific months in the infamous Mamertine prison, a place where incarceration was often itself a death sentence. Though manacled and mistreated, Peter survived the tortures and apparently communicated the gospel effectively to his guards. Eventually, he was hauled out of the dungeon, taken to Nero's circus, and there crucified upside down. Why? Because Peter did not consider himself worthy to be crucified with his head upward like Christ. I mean, crucifixion is bad enough, but to be crucified upside down, that must have been a horrible experience. That's Peter. That's a changed life. Behavior reflects belief. Doubting Thomas will always be known as Doubting Thomas. Here's a guy again who said, I don't care what the women say. Guys, no offense, you're my friends. I don't care what you say. Until these fingers can go into his wounds, and we'll come back to that, I will not believe that Jesus rose from the dead. This is what it says about Thomas. Thomas traveled north and east from Israel, passing through Babylon and Persia. He traveled out of his comfort zone. He traveled away from Rome to foreign lands, right? Making an impact for the gospel as far as southern regions of India. Long-standing traditions about his journeys far beyond the boundaries of Roman control remain even today. Many of the places and kings associated with Thomas that were thought to be merely legendary have been confirmed by independent historical and archaeological studies. Undeniably, developed civilizations lay beyond the horizon to the east, and Jesus' words, quote, to the ends of the earth, must have constantly echoed in the apostles' minds. The trade routes he would use would have been existed for thousands of years. Portuguese mariners and explorers in the 16th century reported evidence of Thomas's ministry, including a sizable band of believers known as the St. Thomas Christians. The fact that Thomas has been so uniquely connected with India among the apostles makes a strong case for his ministry there. Various versions of Thomas's martyrdom agree that he ran afoul of the Hindu priests who envied his successes and rejected his message. Thomas was speared to death. Here's the man who wanted to put his fingers in Jesus' holes, and now he got his own holes. And I'm sure he wore those as a badge of honor. The location of his tomb can still be visited in Mayalapur, Malayapur, India. Most of us will probably not be called to be a martyr in that sense of the world, the way we understand the word martyr in English. But in the Greek, the word means, it means a witness, a witness for Christ. And in that sense, every one of us are called to be a witness for Christ. I want to read John 20, one more scripture. John 20, 28 through 29. Well, I'll start with um, verse 26. It says, And after eight days his disciples were again inside, and Thomas with them. Now Thomas is with them when Jesus appears. Jesus came, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, Peace to you. He said to Thomas, 
reach your finger here and look at my hands and reach your hand here and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, catch this, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Folks, that's us. And listen, somewhere in my 20s, I... You know, I grew up with a, in a popular denomination, and I didn't know why I believed what I believe. And I went on this quest. I got all the books. I got the Koran. I got the Book of Mormon. I got the Jehovah. I just took them all, and I started reading through of them. Because I'm like, I want to believe what the truth is. I just don't want to believe what my parents believed. And you know what? Eventually, I became born again. I have an analytical mind, so I had to be proved to, sort of like Thomas, that the resurrection was true. And I've, I've read of many accounts of, of men who were agnostic or atheists or, or scientists or professors, and I can rattle off a whole bunch of names who started out wanting to uh, deny Jesus and prove once and for all that Jesus didn't exist, and through their research, they became believers. Stan Telchin, a Jewish man, um, his, his daughter got saved, and he, he is furious. And he said, I'm going to prove once and for all that this Jesus is not real. Through his studies, he became a Jewish believer. Pretty awesome stuff. But folks... Jesus is risen, and he is risen indeed. You want, a good, you want to find a good topic for discussion at the dinner table today? Well, here it is. Is my belief in the resurrection the cornerstone of my faith, or is it not? And if not, what can I do to change that? Is the way I live my life any indication of what I believe? Because behavior reflects belief, good or bad. And on this Resurrection Sunday, can we commit to ask God to, number one, open our eyes to the magnitude of the resurrection? It's not just something we do every year. The magnitude of the resurrection. Can we ask him, two, to forgive us for putting him in second place where applicable in our lives? And three, can we ask him to give us a renewed devotion to him? Let's pray. Father in heaven,